In ESG, we have the environmental side that many companies and organizations have understood that, yes, uh, we can make a difference with our business and how we invest and how we produce, et cetera, et cetera. And they are integrating it into the, the mainstream of mm. their businesses. So that is like a different way to do business. If you look at social they still, most of them look at it in terms of the charity. How much money can we give to others who are doing yes. the social stuff and whatever it is, to a schools, to organizations like Inspiring Girls, whatever, but it's not so much about how can we companies do things differently to take into account the social side. So there is a huge gap between the E and the S there. And frankly, very few do the last one, the governance mm. side. So the governance side becomes two paragraphs in the, the annual accounts of the under oh, report. Welcome to the World Class Leaders Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Hey everyone and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. Today I'm honored to have with me uh, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes. Miriam is an international trade lawyer and the founder and chair of Inspiring Girls, and you probably heard about and certainly on LinkedIn. Having previously set up the London-based trade practices of two international law firms, Miriam currently leads the trade and EU regulation practice of US law firm Cohen and Gresser, and is a founding partner of the advisory firm Altius. Your extensive legal experience includes advising clients on intricate EU regulatory and trade matters, as well as handling multi-jurisdictional international investigation on trade and compliance. During academic year 21-22, she lectured on international trade policy at Stanford University. Miriam served as vice chair of the supervisory board of UBS Europe from 19 to 21, having previously been the chair of the audit and remuneration committees at UBS Limited in the UK and chair of audit and risk committees at UBS Spain. She has also been a non-executive board member of the Spanish company Asiona, and she's a member of the diversity board of Toyota Motor Europe and of the Barbie Advisory Council for Mattel. She's a member of International Advisory Board for the Circo de Empresarios in Spain and members of various university advisory boards, as well as a member of the European Council of Foreign Relations. Minima also served for eight years as the honorary president of Canning House, the UK's leading forum on Latin American politics, economy, and business. And finally, last but not least, Miriam is the founder and chair of Inspiring Girls International, a global charity dedicated to raising the aspirations of young girls around the world by connecting school girls and women role models. The campaign operates in 28 countries across the globe and has led the highly praised global campaign, hashtag This Little Girls Me. Thanks for being on the show, Miriam. 
Thank you, Andrea, for having me. And, and it sounds much more impressive when you read it than when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you> for that. <laughs> exactly. many, many people said that many people when they, they hear their own bio, you know, they, they, they feel in a different way. But no, you have an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, we can talk, I'm sure about many things that happen in your career. And one thing that we both believe is very, very important is the element of social in the ESG, because it's an important topic. You, you know a lot about this, the, this area and really I would like to get your views and your ideas about you know, building the S in the ESG formula. But before getting to that, and by the way, we're going to, of course, talk about the inspiring girls because that's an incredible story about. But before going into the, the, the main topic, Miriam, this is something that I didn't say, which is important to mention about your story. Yes, I think that per perhaps the, the only angle that, um, that has always been very important in, in my career and that still shapes a lot of what I do is my background in the European Union. So I started my, my career as um, a civil servant in the European Union, very much focusing on trade negotiations at the time in the World Trade Organization. It was an incredible experience and it was also at a time when the European Union was, was on the high. So uh, the Maastricht Treaty had just happened. We had just had enlargement um, discussions. So we were preparing for enlargement. And all that um, uh, multinational approach and that commitment to the, to the rule of law. Then I moved a bit within the European Union to uh, foreign affairs in relation with the Middle East and with uh, the Mediterranean and then with the US. But, but that approach of being in an international organization and believing that you can do things through consensus and convincing people rather than through um, fighting people has always been very important in, in my career. I'm very um, convinced multilateralist I, I you know the rule of law to me is something that if if you tell me what can I leave to my three sons um, in terms of public policy that is the bit that I would like to right. leave to them and and, um, and and that really impacted pretty much everything that that I do so I still work on trade I did on trade and uh, and everything is informed from that um, that experience that European prison yeah that's great and where are you originally from Miriam by the way I'm originally from Spain and I did all my education uh, there I come from a very small town we are 3,500 people we pretend we are 4,000 because it sounds better but <laughs> it is, it's a small place and I did all my primary and secondary education there. And then I went to university to, to the closest place that was there. So it, it was a very provincial um, upbringing in, in a way, but I was very lucky that it was the, the moment of transition to democracy. And my father was very much involved in politics. And, and there, there had this, we had this drive in Spain to, to go abroad, to see places. Um, they really believed, uh, my parents' generation, that we could do whatever we wanted with education. So I was very lucky that I got a very optimistic period in the history of my country, which is what made it possible for me to have a, an international career. Otherwise, I would have still be in my village. 
Yeah, and it sounds, I mean, I really relate with that because I also had a very, very interesting international career. And so I resonate a lot with, the, with, with your story and the, the importance of education for building the level of international profile and, and, and having also the ability, I think, and the flexibility to live in different countries, in different contexts. And where are you based right now in California, right? I am in Palo Alto right now. I work very much between... Palo Alto, London, Spain, Brussels. I have now opened a company uh, a few months ago in Morocco for uh, the rest of Africa. So I travel a lot. It comes with a territory dealing with, um, with international trade, which is what I do. And my team always makes the joke that I'm always based in an airport. They don't know which one, but in an airport, that's where I am. <laughs> And I, I take that you suffer a lot during COVID, as everyone, of course, with an maybe inability to travel, right? I did and I didn't. In a way, I, I have been working remotely, uh, precisely from airports and many <laughs> other places for, Fair enough. for a long time. And it only required that we, we adapt a little bit in terms of the format. I think it was much more of a a transition for the clients that I work with, for the companies and governments I work with, than, than for myself. And I think that is, is fantastic how much we have discovered in terms of the way of working is one of the very few positive things that have come with this terrible tragedy, really, that has yeah. been. No, I agree. I agree. And, and I'm, I am with you totally right. All right. So, uh, Miriam, why you are so intrigued, fascinated, interesting to the element of social into the ECG equation. So first of all, why ECG matters and why social is probably either misunderstood or maybe left behind when we talk about ECG, because as far as I know, that's your point of view about this matter. Well, I, I think that you're right. I think that uh, I, I have seen, you know, I'm old enough now, 54, to to have seen the beginning and the middle of the ESG discussions, not yet the end, because we are still in the, in the process of it. And I think that it has been a step in the right direction for companies to, um, to understand and accept that they have an impact on society and that therefore, <laughs> whatever they are doing has to take into account that impact on, on society. I'm right now in, in Palo Alto in the, you know, the cradle of the tech revolution. I think that there are some companies like in tech that is taking much more for <laughs> to make them aware that you need to understand the impact of on society before you put products in the market. But I think that generally speaking, that drive towards um, ESG, the impact on society, the impact on the environment, et cetera, et cetera, has been a step, a step in the right direction. And the, the second step that I saw in the right direction was to say, and we need to put the money behind it. It's just not good enough <laughs> to talk about this in, in kind of um, uh, charity terms from the companies. It's, we really need to bind our financials uh, to this. But something that I, I still find quite disturbing is that, generally speaking, in ESG, we have the environmental side that many companies and organizations have understood that, yes, uh, we can make a difference with our business and how we invest and how we produce, et cetera, et cetera. And they are integrating it into the, the mainstream 
of mm. their businesses. So that is like a different way to do business. If you look at social, they still, most of them look at it in terms of the charity. How much money can we give to others who are doing yes. the social stuff and whatever it is, to a schools, to organizations like Inspiring Girls, whatever, but it's not so much about how can we companies do things differently to take into account the social side. So there is a huge gap between the E and the S there. And frankly, very few do the last one, the governance mm. side. So the governance side becomes two paragraphs in the, the annual accounts of the oh, and the reports of the companies about the, yeah, of course, things were well. But it's like, are you really modifying your governance to take into account how you account for all that impact? So I think that it is called ESG, but it's really, it could be like one, two, three. The one... <laughs> Many are kind of getting there, the two, very few, and the three is almost like an afterthought uh, yet. And, and we need to make sure on the society side, we need to make sure that we keep saying, no, no, these are three legs and the three ones are equally important. Yeah, it's, One is more urgent, but they are all very important. <laughs> well, I suppose, but I might be wrong here, that the focus that has been more on the E side, so the environment, essentially has been certainly driven by, you know, the important metrics and objective that, you know, we know about 2050 and all, all met in terms of the carbonization in general, right? The, our society and the planet. And I suppose that's probably been the reason why the E became so relevant because there's been a very specific API objective to reach in, in a reasonable short period of time because 2050 is there regardless whether you know we think it's too you know it's, it's far away it's there and we know how many organizations they are still uh, behind that in terms of what they're doing in order to 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 reach to the point so i i suppose i might be wrong that maybe that is one the main reason it's tangible you can say and there's an immediate impact on the planet however you're right the s and g they've been left behind and uh and I agree. I think the G is probably more like ticking the boxes. So we did the G, then we did on a, on a report on the website, and then it's done. And the social then opens a lot of more, I would say, opportunity, but also maybe we need to clarify what social means. So how we can really build the S element, that leg for organizations. So what is your view on ideas or how very specific organizations can work on the social elements. Can I bring it back a little bit yes. to what you were saying? Because to me, part of the problem with that approach that I, I think that is right, you know, there is a, a political urgency on the environmental side. We have now a, a big drive from countries and international organizations. And, you know, if, if, if anything, what worries me most on the east side is the greenwashing. So th there is a lot of washing everywhere, greenwashing, pinkwashing, et cetera, yes. et cetera yes. different colors. But at least on the on the E side, there is a sense of urgency. Something that I don't um I don't believe myself is that you can do the E without the G. So I think that the governance is really important to make sure that the the efforts that you are making on the E and the S um, really go in the right direction and it's not just you know that you can check it that the projects 
are, are meaningful, that you, um, you are putting the right resources. This is not just for the show. And you know that governance side, if you change completely your approach, obviously you need to change uh, your governance. So I, I would dispute the, the view that you can look at those three legs um, on an individual basis without seeing the links, the links between them. Yeah, should be on a strong synergy, side. synergy exactly. between all of them. It's like governance being the foundation to, to some extent to all of that, right? Exactly. It's the underlying <laughs> yeah. layer yeah. there that that facilitates everything else to the point that at, at a certain moment it would not need to come from the international organizations and the, yes. <laughs> and the countries because you have it there internalized in your own uh, governance, governance system. In terms of the social, to me, there are two issues there. One is we don't have enough ideas as to how you monetize, if you wish, the, the social impact that you mm. can have. So we don't have projects, even if we wanted to invest. And, you know, I have done a lot of work in boards of financial institutions and so on. It's difficult to see what did you invest in and what, where did you see the return? Because, you know, I'm passionate, for example, about some of the things that I do with Inspiring Girls, which is access to female role models and making sure that um, girls change their approach to uh, to risk and that fear of failure that the OECD identifies in, in girls. Why are we having it there with a bit of the population? Cannot we just kick it out so that we are going to see this flourish later on whenever they start working? But you say, how do you monetize that? It's not mm. so obvious. You know, it's not like I'm investing in deforestation in the in X area. And therefore, because we have looked at the amount of money linked to um, the, the capture of CO2, you, you, know, you can monetize it. On the social side, it's much more difficult. So I think that we, we need much more thinking um, mm. into how you put a, a, a money value in some of these long-term projects, which is on the education side, for example, or on the, on the social side. And I think that we need more of the financial services minds um, dedicated to, to actually doing that intellectual work. And to me, that could be much more important than whether they put X thousand dollars or pounds or euros or whatever into X project, because that, that could unlock a lot of potential late, later on for companies to start thinking, oh yeah, this is how I can link it to yes. my accounts and to the activity that I do. My other worry that is very different and this is something that I see with companies a lot and I see it in, in advisory boards and so on is that they throw everything on social all at the same level mm. so you have um, um, gender you have LGBTQ you have race you have disability you, you know um, uh, children whatever it is no? and everything kind of comes together you say, well, not all the issues have the same nature. <laughs> so some of those issues affect minorities, are really about the rights of minorities, and that has a certain approach. You have to be very attentive on the right of minorities because they go immediately under the surface. So how do mm -hmm. you make sure that you're 
rescuing it yes. <laughs> and giving it the right importance, some of those issues affect majorities. So the issues related to women affect a majority of society. Totally. So that, that is a very different approach. Is a majority of the society in terms of your wor workforce? Is a majority of society in terms of your consumers and clients? So it's very different approach and we are still bundling it all together. And, you know, you go through the bullet points in terms of the agendas and, oh, we are doing this and we are doing that. And it's more or less all the same approaches. And we need to start getting a little bit more sophisticated um, in terms of how we are tackling this issue. So all this to say that socialists is still approach very much in terms of, oh, I just give some money. And, you know, I'm going to feel really good as a company because it's X amount of money or whatever. And the, the more sophisticated ones are just in terms of I put the time of my employees into mm. this or that. I still think that we would do much better if we say, yeah, all that is good, but we all need to have a bit of an intellectual contribution to see how do we really have to approach this. We have done that intellectual contribution and work. On the E side, we still haven't really done it on the S side. Now uh, that, that's clear, and uh, and I like how you describe it. And I I didn't think actually. So back to your first point, I didn't think about the the availability of good projects to to sponsor to invest on. And why do you think is that? Is because is is a lack of creativity, or is a lack of offer in the market, or is uh, is something else? So how we can, in other words, how we can probably develop a better pipeline of projects on the, on the social side. Is there any, any idea, any, any advice that you would like to give to organization? Because I think you're right, it's, it's a big reason, but still we have to find a solution to that, right? And I'm not expecting that you have a solution for everything, of course, but what is your suggestion in finding better projects, new projects, maybe creating new projects? I think that the reason we don't have them is that it is generally difficult to, um, to see how we can monetize some of those projects um, on the social side. So if I look at Inspiring Girls, that is something that I am working in now. I say, okay, we have companies, um, yes, uh, becoming sponsors, for example. Yes. Yeah? Which is and more like a traditional I, way for, for working with charities, way. right? And in our case, it gets a little bit more sophisticated because companies, we, we normally tell companies, you cannot write, just write a check. So either you bring your employees and we are going to use their time and we are going to get them to engage with girls and to do videos and to the social media, et cetera, et cetera. Or just don't just give us the money because you know money, anybody can give money. We want to see a commitment. But then you start thinking, like, why aren't they actually investing in these girls? You know, because these are the employees of the future. So why cannot we just start thinking, you actually put the money here and we want to see the return? And this is going to be a multi-year investment mm -hmm. into this constituency of girls who may be interested in your um in your business area or whatever. And, you know, intellectually, yeah, sounds great. How do you actually do it? It's very difficult because it's, you know, this is not like I'm investing in planting trees. Yes. Like this, is, this is in the long term. I don't really know how it is going to 
uh, go, where do I get the return? How do I measure the, the return? And that is why you need not only people with the good ideas in terms of contribution, which is what those of us working on the social side have, we need the financial services um, people thinking, yeah, th this is how you build it intellectually. Yes. And you know, we have done really difficult things. Who would have thought that we would have a whole system linked to emissions? To emi you know, I come from the trade and regulatory side and if you had told me 30 years ago that we were going to have a whole new market of emissions and that in addition, this was going to be internationally and that we were going to have, as we are having now, taxes to compensate <laughs> for whether you have paid the emission at the origin or later on, I would have told you, but this is science fiction, but we have done it. And it's, you cannot even capture it, <laughs> that right. emission, right? So we need some of that innovative thinking and I think that that is all about that is where we should put the political and social pressure now we need to have a few more innovative approaches I certainly don't have all the answers on that but I think that we need to galvanize the momentum to start thinking about it otherwise we are going to see a huge gap going forward between ENS no and and I agree 100 percent well that's interesting because we had uh, on the show and uh, a few weeks ago um someone working for one of the largest energy company in, in Italy, but he's an international company. And, and he shared, the, he's an H, someone is working in, in the human resources, and he shared their approach of innovation into ESG activities. And uh, he mentioned, so they're working, honestly, very, very, in a very interesting way, how they are developing essentially, primarily the S element of ESG. And one of the things they are doing, which to me is one of the nice projects, as we discussed before, they are essentially investing on people coming from refugees, for people in, with the disabilities, people with problems, and they are essentially helping them developing new digital skills, because digital skills is one of the things they're missing right now in, in many industries. You know, every, you, you listen leaders talking every day about lack of digital skills or enough skills to run the new technology and new initiative the organization are doing. And that's for me is a good example how you can essentially bring value because first of all, you are helping people first. Second, bringing value as well to the, to the system, to the ecosystem. And as well as that at the end as well for the organizations. So I'm not sure whether it's one of the projects that probably you're gonna list as, as a good project, but for me, they, they are, the way how they're approaching sounds interesting because that's the kind of good win-to-win type of project that probably other organizations should think about. Is one of yeah. those projects that you think potentially could work? The, the, the element of helping people to learn new skills that, that can be used in organizations? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the only thing that I would add to that is, so how do we account for that value? Because mm. things, things become unlocked when I know that I can put that value into my accounts. That, that is the thinking that we have had on E. <laughs> which yes. was to say, if you can do certain things, you link it to your account. This is value to your account also. It's not just that you're a good citizen as a company. Yes. <laughs> there is a benefit to your account. We need to be able to do exactly the same thing on the social side. It's much more difficult, of course, because a lot of this is long-term and the value may not come to you, may go yes. to others. So, so it really needs a big intellectual, you know, 
discussion there. And I think that, that at the point where we are is about making sure everybody understands that we need to do that reflection. Um, and perhaps we will be there in a few years time, but it's, it's, very, it's very shocking really to see. And I, I participate in boards of all sorts of companies in different sectors. The approach tends to be always the same. It's just charity. Yes, it's charity really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that linked me to, to the reason why and you know you created Inspiring Girls. And I really would like to understand more about the story of Inspiring Girls and why and or maybe whether was the East Element USG that one of the drivers that you have decided to create it, Inspiring Girls, but also would be great if you show us a bit, you know, a bit of the path, the journey that you've been through, because it's been super successful story so why you started you know what was the driver what was the big why of course and why now this project matters for organization as well well i i had two drivers so to speak i first did um a kind of embryo of inspiring girls that was called inspiring women and and i launched it in the UK. And the reason I did that was that I was, uh, my husband was at the time the Deputy Prime Minister of the UK. And for those of you who are not in the UK, um, you, you, you would understand this better if you know that uh, the wives, is particularly the wives, not the husbands of politicians, right. are brought very quickly by the media into the, the center of what um, they do. So you have all these journalists just following everything that you do and uh, in a very traditional manner so you are expected to be the flower pot mm. beside the, the politician i was working at the time from a different culture and i was totally totally shocked the kind of things that were expected from me and the amount of sexism that i i uh, was the recipient of in particular from some of the the tabloids, tabloids the, the right wing um, tabloids and in one of these moments you know they, they kept asking me at every interview don't you think that there are not enough female role models because they put on me the, the label of the professional um, uh, woman right. wife no? and it drove me mad because like I know so many amazing female role models on my own I can give you the names of thousands of them the issue is not that they are not there, is that they, they, you don't put them there on the newspapers and on the television and on the magazine. Exactly. They don't, get, they don't have exposure. Exactly. They don't have yeah. a space. They don't have visibility. So I thought, why don't we set up something to connect these amazing female role models with girls? So I went to an organization. I put it all together. We got 25,000 British women all throughout the countries go, going back to schools to to inspire girls, which is what inspiring girls now does. And uh, that we did it in the UK. Then in 2016, my husband was already out of government. And I thought, well, we need to internationalize it because I was being contacted by lots of women in different countries saying, we want this too. Why is this only in the, in the mm. UK? And teachers in particular are the ones that are most interested in it. And I was pretty much being told by that time, oh, listen, your husband is not in government anymore. There is no way you are going to manage to do this. You only did this because he was in government at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm a pretty stubborn person. If you tell me that there is something I cannot do, I really, really want to do it. <laughs> so I put it all together. In the, it was very difficult at the beginning. It was very difficult to get the 
sponsors. I even had to publish a cooking book to be able to get money to a start. Oh, really? It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the very odd things I have done. And we wow. started, Italy was one of the first countries, Spain, Serbia, and very, very quickly it just took over. We are in 29 countries right now. There are three more coming in the coming in the next few, in the next few months. And the success has been amazing, really. And I, I always get embarrassed when people ask me this question as to how it was created and how it has taken off. Mm. Because it it all looks like if I push it, but but really the the main thing I have done has been to put forward a simple idea. And I believe very much on this, on the S side of ESG. The ideas have to be simple because people want to contribute. But if it's very complex, very quickly you lose the momentum. So I put there a very simple idea that is the national teams, the thousands of women and teachers and, and now girls as well, because girls who have come through our program now are helping other girls. They are the ones that do the the day-to-day -day work and they they make the effort and all that I do is to make sure that we all you know continue focusing on the on the right things continue expanding and continue sharing the values which is what what has made it a, a big success so just to get a bit more um, everyone an understanding about the scale of inspiring girls so how many people now working for, for the organizations? How many people are the inspiring women? They are into the program, inspiring girls. And totally, how many countries, how many, how many girls now they are into this program? Well, we have thousands of girls and it's almost impossible to account for, yeah. for all of them. We are um, 29 countries. As I say, there are three more coming in the next three to four, uh, three to four months. We have the headquarters still... Um, in the UK. In terms of the women, the headquarters is very small. We are never going to be big. I think that we have now six, seven right now, seven um, women dedicated full-time uh, to the headquarters. And I don't believe in big organizations. So we are going to continue having it very small, but then it operates almost as a franchise. So in different countries, there are teams of, and, and it also allows for not having a patronizing element. This is about Algerian women talking to Algerian girls <laughs> and Chilean women talking to Chilean girls. It's not about European or American women yeah. going to Africa, Latin America, wherever it is, just telling them all what they, they should do. So in each organization, there is like the national headquarters, so to speak, and the numbers of, of women varied depending on the geography of the uh, country sometimes we need three or four different centers and also the state of development of the mm. of the program there but there are now hundreds really if you take it all together and we operate always with a model of a small um, central teams and a lot of volunteers so there are women who are the volunteer uh, role models but also many women who help on a volunteer basis on the central organizations and I I'm, that's one of the things that I really believe in. It, when when um, these kind of organizations create big headquarters or big national teams, you start working for the bureaucracy of the organization yeah. rather than for the purpose. Our purpose is the girls and all the effort, all the resources really uh, go to the girls. And in terms of the girls, now it's very difficult to account because we do. I imagine. We go back to schools. 
Um, we have now programs running, specific programs. We are doing financial education, for example, robotics education in many countries. We have workshops on leadership. So they, they ask us more and more is quite interesting in terms of the specifics of um, subjects. And it's normally not just the teachers now, it's the parents asking, look, they want to come more, they want to hear more from you. So can you do some specific um workshops or or gatherings on certain topics emotional intelligence for example is something that they ask us a lot risk how do you deal with with risk so we do all that but then we have a video hub uh, where we have role models just doing self-recorded videos uh, so that the girls can't uh, look at all that and listen. And, and boys, by the way, can use it too. And then if they want through their schools, they can ask for virtual sessions. So it's very difficult to know how many have access to that because obviously yes. that's an open resource. And then lately, last year, and you referred to that at the beginning, we launched the This Little Girl Is Me campaign that it was all about, let's do it on social media. So wherever the girls are, we don't even want them to have to click on the video hub, if they are in the sofa in their house, just looking with their telephone to social media, we want to be there in their feet so that they cannot escape the role models. And that campaign was like the campaign that has had most pass in the whole history of LinkedIn. We had thousands of people uh, contributing in Instagram. We um, we reached eight, eight million um um people using using social media it was amazing it really took over and i i'm always surprised to see how many people want to help so i'm, I'm totally convinced always that we say oh we are a selfish society that's rubbish really everybody tries to help sometimes it's just difficult to know how so from the moment okay. you tell people how to do it, of course everybody does it you know it's just people are always on the on the right side, it's just difficult sometimes in society to see how you can you can make an impact. But if you have a simple idea, which I, I think that it was the merit, not just of inspiring girls, but also of that campaign, this little girl is me. It was all about posting a picture of yourself as a woman when you were younger. And you know, what advice would you give to yourself? What were you thinking about? What did you want to be? And and it's in LinkedIn in particular, it led to women sharing amazing stories and you spent half of your time reading them, laughing and, and with a smile in your face and half of your time just crying about this, these stories of overcoming difficulties. And, and I realized myself, you know, some of the women I, I worked with and I knew so little about what they had gone through. And it makes you think, and sometimes we, we just don't know enough about the human being behind the colleagues we have. No? And that's such a great point because, by the way, I got to know that campaign on LinkedIn because I'm quite active and it went viral. It was amazing because I think LinkedIn uh, has been misused by many people, more like, you know, hey, the show off, that's me winning these awards, so getting your client, getting your project. But when people start really sharing their personal stories and what they've been through, not surprised there is such a big engagement because people, they want to get inspired. At the end of the day, LinkedIn is a networking platform. And I think you nailed it for that specific reason because people were and are still 
craving for inspiring stories. And I think that campaign for me was one of the best I've seen on, on LinkedIn because you really see people growing. And, uh, and, and so for me, this was really on point. Um, so th that, that's wonderful. I think is uh, one question, maybe the last question, and then I'm going to ask you the last final few questions really is, now that you're building this, and of course it's growing and growing, and, uh, and there will be more opportunity as well to get involved and, and get into the program. But how, you know, going back to the point where we started really, so how do you think Inspiring Girls as a movement now can offer to organizations, to corporates, any opportunity really to invest? I mean, we said, you know, you can invest through sponsorship, which is a little bit more traditional, but what is going to be the return of investment for this company if they really want to get involved in Inspiring Girls? One thing maybe that you want to share. Well, so far we are still operating with that traditional model of we want okay. um, the engagement from your employees uh, on whatever it is that we are doing, other general approaches to girls or, or some of the workshops. Um, and then in the process of doing that, they obviously okay. provide a financial contribution to be able to put together yes. uh, those gatherings. We are working with some of them in particular in terms of the sectoral uh, work that we do to see whether we can account for that investment longer term and, and see how they would see the value coming the other end. And I, one of the areas that I'm most keen to, uh, to explore further with some of them is precisely the area of financial education. Mm. So it has to be possible if we are targeting, as we are doing now, thousands of girls through a variety of means in lots of different countries, and we are teaching them, you know, this is a mortgage. <laughs> this is how you don't indebt yourself, get yourself into debt uh, when you are older. This is the, the basic financial services knowledge that you need to know. It has to be possible to put a monetary value on the upgrading of that knowledge in a sector of the population where banks and financial institutions find afterwards that it is a problem that they don't mm. have that knowledge that happens still a totally. lot in relation totally. to women. So, so that is the, for me, is the, the test, if you wish, <laughs> as to how we can get that done, which has the merit that is also working with uh, financial services companies that they do know about how to, to account for that value. And Wonderful. as soon as we have done that, um, that next step in that area, I think that it would be easier to do it in other areas like tech or so. Yeah, well, wonderful. Yeah, I love this idea. And, and I think it's pretty much needed. The financial skills, not just for women, honestly, for, for even men, it's, it's a problem across, you know, the globe, you know, being self-educated on, on the financial, on the financial. Fantastic, Miriam. So I know you're busy. So I'm going to ask you the last four questions very quickly. So I'm expecting a quick answer. So what is the, across all your career, what is maybe one thing that you learn on top of everything? Um, for me, the, the main thing for me has been that I love a strategy. <laughs> that is, and I think that you need to, you see with age, that you need to find out, and it takes a long time to find out what are you really good at and what you really enjoy. Mm. And you try to do lots of different things. You know, I have had phases in my career where I wanted to do management. I wanted to manage big teams. And, and, and now I think, well, actually what I really like is the strategy side and the leading side more than the, 
the management. So, so yeah, probably the main thing that I have learned throughout my career is myself, to learn about myself. <laughs> totally, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and what exactly you want, right? And not just following into, into what is required, maybe what is needed yeah. in, in the corporate world. On the other hand, uh, what is maybe one thing that you would have done differently across your career? I think that risk. I really am very much the, the product of when the OECD talks about girls not undertaking as much risk as boys. I very much was one of those girls. It has taken me a long time to understand, probably because of my culture and the time when I was born, that that risk is a good thing and you need to know how to deal with it and to me it really has taken kind of 53 years of my life and moving to Silicon Valley to realize that I need a different approach to risk. I have started setting up my own companies rather than working for others really looking much more at the investment side and uh, and I think well if I had discovered this 20 years ago probably my career would have been very different. Uh, what a better place than Silicon Valley to increase, <laughs> you know, our appetite for risking, right? And I agree. I think the, the risk appetite, the risk attitude is very much related to our education. So, which is quite normal, honestly. It really depends where we were born and the situation that we were born. So, love that. Now, in terms of performance, you had a, such a brilliant career, not even considering the incredible growth of, uh, of these parent girls. Are you able to define what really helped you to have this incredible performance in your life or maybe in some specific uh, moment of your life? What was in place at the time to allow you to get there? Well, I have been um, very lucky to be a few times in my life in the right moments at the, hmm. at the right time. But I, I think in terms of my experience, um, there have been a few people, you know, there is a handful of people that have been, very crucial in, in my life. And I think that having people who believe in you at key moments when you're thinking, well, I cannot really do this, you know? And I, when I started, for example, and I was uh, offered to lead the, the WTO negotiations for the EU on telecommunications, that there is no way, I'm, I'm in my twenties, you know, I can't do this. And to have people telling you, know, you, you can, and you're actually very good at uh -huh. it you know? and and that that push um at key moments of my life has been absolutely crucial so, so find people who believe who believe in you and it's not mentoring really <laughs> it's, it's just the pushing at, at some point and i think that it's, it's so important to know who's who's your crowd your small crowd who are there to push you in the right direction who has your back right because regardless what you're doing but because they believe in you and they support you yeah, yeah i love that and finally uh, is there one single book that really impact most your your life or your career so far? Well, actually, yes, and it's a bit cheesy one, but do you remember that some years ago, this is going to show how old I am, but there was a book that became uh, quite famous in terms of management, that it was Who Moved My Cheese? Oh. And it was all about... Yes movement and constant change and and to me it actually I, I keep going back to that a lot because we all have a tendency to think well now I have arrived <laughs> this is it and whenever I think this is it it's like no Mary and keep thinking this is going to change tomorrow and you just you yes. just need to adapt and and 
in a way, I think that sometimes I have probably internalized too much of it. My teams always say, God, you know, you are restless all the time. And when we think that we, we need to have a plateau, you are already thinking of the next step. But I think that it's so important to understand change and to feel comfortable with it and to realize that it's a constant, constant journey. So it doesn't matter how successful or not successful you think you are. Tomorrow is going to be different and you need to be ready to change your parameters to deal with it. Well, I love that. It's really fighting complacency because sometimes, right, when we reach to the top or, you know, that we think we're winning, that's normally the time when we start losing, actually, because we think that complacency is going to is going to help us is actually not. And by the way, it's funny because we had a one CEO here in, in this show that mentioned exactly that book. And he mentioned exactly that is keep reading that book when he's on the plane is because that's important to remind him that things are going to evolve anyway. So I need to be ready for that. So okay. you are when not alone. App, but also when you're on the dance. So when you think that it's going wrong, it is going to change. <laughs> exactly right. And that is a good positive attitude around, around change, right? Miriam, it's been an incredible, amazing conversation. So where people should go if they want to know more about you and especially what you're doing right now? Well, LinkedIn is a very good place to, to start. I'm very active on LinkedIn and on Instagram. And then the uh, website, you can find there all the websites of the different organizations. And if you are interested in inspiring girls that we have, by the way, not only women, but also many men helping on inspiring girls is www.inspiring-girls.com. And you can find everything that we do there. Fantastic. And uh, Miriam, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you, Andrea. It's, it's a real pleasure talking to you. I could be talking to you for hours. Exactly right. As this is a very interesting topic. I really would like to hear from you and understanding what you think about this. So please send me any comments either uh, on LinkedIn or you can send me via email at andrea at andreapetroni.com. You can find anyway these links on the show notes. And, um, and by the way, if you like what we shared, I strongly recommend actually to leave a review because, you know, as a podcaster, we leave reviewed so the only way for our episode and our podcast to grow is by having positive reviews so i appreciate that and also sharing with your friends and colleagues if you think they might be interested and final note i normally um, summarize the findings of each episode even the ones with the guest uh, on my website and i write every thursday a very interesting uh, short summary about what we share so if you don't want to miss that and you prefer uh, reading i strongly recommend going to my website www.andreapetrone.com blog you can subscribe there i'm not sending any sales thing it's just big good insights of my experience with the podcast and my work with clients so thank you so much for listening to this episode and i look forward to see you next time